Hello everyone, here we are again, the Smooth Thrills Radio Hour, Series 3, Episode 3. I am your host, Jason Rutledge. So before we get going, just as a reminder, we are still doing the Instagram live streams that we've been doing every Sunday at noon Texas time. We'd love to take your questions and your comments, so please stop by. Or, you know, if you're shy, you can always send us a message through the good old-fashioned email system. That's autopilot at smooththrillsradiohour.com. So in this episode, Nathan and Katie are here to discuss one of my favorite movies, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, starring Diane Lane, Laura Dern, Ray Winstone, among many others. It's an interesting glimpse into the post-punk scene of the late 1970s and early 1980s. It also inspired a lot of what happened with alt-rock in the 1990s. It's magnificent, and you should check it out as soon as you can, if you haven't already. That said, it's time to get on with the show, and for that, I'm going to turn things over to our very special guest, Feeway Bill. This song was number one for seven weeks in a row! You keep asking for it, and we're up here to make you happy! So what are we going to do? Roadmap of my tears! Roadmap of my tears! I just, there was like this plot device where they blow Paul Bunyan up in a cave and he's just a regular sized man. But by the time he gets out of the rock explosion, he becomes a giant. You know, that's, that's the explanation. Not even a superhero kind of mutation, Maybe nothing. Maybe there was radiation from the explosion? That wasn't explained. I don't know if they filmed it in Bronson Canyon or what, but he comes out of there and now he's a fucking giant. I'm like, mm, I'm gonna have a problem with this. So what you're saying is, is the way I need to get taller. Everything is just I've to learned about radiation from watching 1950s yeah. insect fear films is that radiation can do anything, anything. But at least they say it's radiation. <laughs> yeah, like they didn't you know? even mention that in the Tarantula, movie. you know, Amazing Colossal Man, that kind of I stuff. I practically minored in those movies. Jason, you and your bug movies. Three <laughs> D insect fear films. <laughs> And major because they're they're huge. No. So everybody on on this episode, we're going back to the late 1970s, which I know is a total shock to you because we almost never talk about the 1970s on this show at all. But here we go. Uh, the punk scene that came in with the Sex Pistols was shifting toward new wave, no wave, and the new romantics. Uh, guys like Adam and the Ants, Spandau Ballet, ABC. Uh, a little later on, Duran Duran, but. In the gap between the near collapse of punk rock and the rise of new wave came what we call the post-punk movement. Bands were starting up absolutely everywhere, like Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Tulsa, believe it or not, and Dallas. Bands of teenagers, the so-called teeny punks, not because they were very tiny people, but because they were teenagers, uh, were embracing the DIY spirit of their punk ancestors who were now entering their mid-20s and were touring across the U.S. by whatever means they could put together and building a community all of their own. Part of that post-punk scene is depicted in the movie we're discussing on this episode. We're talking about a group called The Stains, and ladies and gentlemen, they were fabulous. Welcome everyone to the Smooth Thrills Radio Hour, coming to you from Old East Dallas, home to the Telephones, NCM, Bobby Sox and the Teenage Queers, Bomb Squad, The Hugh Beaumont Experience, and Stickmen with Ray Guns, among others. And in the spirit of uh, presenting that movie title backwards just now, I kind of like to start with this movie at the end. 
the nearly 20 minute long or so feels like music video that got stuck onto the end of this movie about two years after it was produced. How are we feeling about this? I love that music yeah, video. Yeah, I liked it. I love that cover that they do of what Ray was the other band. band that, yeah. was it Ray Winstone's band that did the song, band that did it? and then they stole it, and the it was the only song yeah, they yeah. ever made, apparently, because they don't do any other one in the movie. <laughs> but it, hey, it goes on and on and on and on, though. It just goes, like, right Over before the... the end credits and goes through mm. the credits. That's yeah. all. I just took it as, like, an end credit it's scene. It's like three <laughs> minutes, I think, tops. Did you... Did you have the the repeat on that chapter going? Maybe. <laughs> and you're like, why it does kind of point hours? out one of the big problems at the core of the movie, and the movie itself I love to death, but it does have one significant issue with it in that the director of the movie wanted the band to succeed, the writer did not. Uh, the writer was Nancy Dowd. You don't hear much about her because she prefers writing under a pseudonym if she takes credit at all. This is one of the few movies where she actually has her... I don't think mm -hmm. her name is on the credits of this one, but she definitely wrote it. It's under a man's name. Her other credits include Coming Home, Slapshot, one of the best movies yes. about professional football ever made, North Dallas 40, and Ordinary People. Oh, they're going to say Slapshot was. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so I guess if you've already won an Oscar for screenwriting, you don't really care too much if your name is on it, but it's definitely clear that and from everything I've read about this, that her intention with the movie was that the band fails ultimately. And that's not what director Lou Adler was going for. So there's this, this tension through the whole movie where it's kind of working in two different purposes. No, I think right. it adds to up. it, though. Yeah, because it gives like this other dimension to You're like, well, obviously the fact that they shot mm -hmm. it a couple years later. But also it makes it look like, well, what mm -hmm. happened? Did they just say fuck it and then they came back at a later point and get back together because of the record producers or something got involved? But it seems like it would go... You're talking about the in-movie right, story? Like they, I mean, you only have that glimmer of hope that Diane Lane has toward the end when she sees all the other, you know, let's call them white stripes. Mm -hmm. Skunks. Yeah. The skunks. Yeah, that's true, the skunks. But um, <laughs> I just picked up on the White Stripes thing because I was like, is that a reference? Like, did they take that from the Fabulous Stains? Because I, I don't remember catching that before. And I was like, mm. wait a minute. When Ray Winstone says to her that, you know, just another couple of White Stripes, you know, or something like that. I'm like, wait a minute. Two people in the White Stripes? Mm. I don't know. That no, could be. nothing that. Like could that, be. But... The movie ended up being really influential. Um, it was almost lost to the mists of time because it didn't get any distribution in theaters and had its entire second life on home video just by accident almost. But it did inspire the Riot Girl movement undeniably when it came around in the 90s with Bikini Kill and Sleater Kidney and bands like that. We'll point to this movie as one of their main inspirations. This band of very young girls, I think Diane Lane was 12 when she made this movie. Mm, she was 15. She was 17. 15? Laura Dern was 15. Well, that 15, was when they oh finished gosh. that music video in When they finished 82. the video, yeah. So Diane Lane was 15 when they initially shot it in 1980, and Laura Dern was 12 going into 13, which is unbelievable because she looks, you couldn't, I would at least think she yeah. was 16. Oh. Yeah. Didn't, uh, didn't Laura Dern have to emancipate from mm -hmm. her parents to even make this thing? Yeah, because her mother wouldn't let her travel to film it. Yeah, because it was in Toronto, right? Isn't that where they primarily shot this? 
Toronto subbing out for Pittsburgh, I think, as we're because yeah. the movie takes place mostly in Pittsburgh. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if it was shot somewhere else. But you had these very young women who were in a band because they said so. And that's about all the justification they needed to do it. So you can imagine how what a kind of yeah. impact that had on people picking up a guitar for the first time. Well, also, even even in the opening, the Diane Lane, the interview, and then you see her, like, her mother passes away, right. and she gets fired from her job by Brent Spiner. I was about to ask if anybody recognized the, the manager of the store yeah. at the beginning. Um, and it's kind of like, it's a rebel yell right from the start. Mm. You know, like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to do what I want to mm-hmm. do. And why not start a band, you know, to spite everybody or it's interesting. Like I said, in mentioned in the intro, one of the keys to the post-punk scene was this whole DIY aspect of it. This Sounds like some DIY. Mm. Right, it's a right stupid now truck around. that lives in my apartment complex. But what is a truck doing Sorry. living in your apartment complex? Being an asshole and loud. Well, if they're charging extra to keep is it. Is it a duplex that they're in? Because that's even crazier. <laughs> Anyway, the the DIY aspect of it, the creating your own scene, creating your own thing, a lot of these bands were creating their own magazines to promote themselves also. There's a particular band I'm thinking of called Desperate Bicycles, and they put out a single called Smoke Screen, I think it was. And at the end of the song, they're chanting, it was easy, it was cheap, go and do it, go and do it. The sleeve of the single had a whole list of expenses. They listed the price of they paid at the pawn shop for every instrument, the price of the recording studio, getting the record pressed, and distributing it. And at the very end of that list said something along the lines of, we did it, we'd really like to know why you haven't made your single yet. It was, a, it was like a call to action for all these guys. Like if we can stop and do it, then anybody sure. can, basically. Yeah, I mean, cool. this is, part of that spirit is the whole reason this show exists, is because it's not hard. You can do this, go do your own thing. And that's what the Stains were doing also, even though they kind of, stole someone else's song to do it. The the betrayal of the looters and Ray Winstone specifically. Yeah, but it kind of could go either mm. way though. Like that he relationship. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that relationship I mean, goes back and forth throughout. And though at the point where she thinks that he is lying, he is actually being mm. genuine, but yeah, everything he did prior to that could have been seen as well, he, he has his own so, problems as well. Yeah, it's the boy who cried wolf. He's a, he's a total yeah. dick to Fee Waybill at the be- for most of the movie. Yeah. He's like mocking him. That's like what killed me about it. He's like yeah. calling him a washed up old hag or whatever he calls him. I mean, he's talking about a band that predates him by six years. And he's himself is about to get replaced by a band that's been around for three or four weeks. But that's how the wheel goes. And at the end of the movie, you have those skunks calling him an old fart. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of mm-hmm. comes he's, full he's circle. He's 22 years circle. old in an old fart. That's, a, that's pretty Yeah, amazing. he's not washed up at all. Yeah, yeah. How old is she meant to be? That's not clear. Because that's a whole other can of worms. It definitely that, is. Oh, I know yeah. they say to her that she is a teenager at some yeah. point. You're talking about the shower scene in particular? But they it's, still never. Well, just anything with him and yeah. her. It's like, if he's meant to be 22, then... I don't think they really say it, No, though. but she is what very age clearly... Clearly under 16. There's no the new- way. The news reporter just says you're a teenager. They never specify a specific mm. age. My thought was like, because she has a job at the beginning. She's at least 16, yeah. 16, 17, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's what I think is interesting also about that ending being shot a couple years later is it kind of makes it look like they've been chipping back away at this for two more years. Yeah. And okay. maybe that's I can see that. the breakthrough. 
And because they of, even look older. Like yeah, their yeah, outfits have changed. The hair has changed. Like, and I also like how, and this was just my take on it. The whole, it seems like it's an ad for joining the military. Because <laughs> like they're in the little car in their little like oh. military dress. And then it's like, if you want to be a professional, then bullet. And I'm just like, this just seems like an ad for joining the military. The mil- military <laughs> iconography was huge in early 80s music videos. I think it's because that's what you yeah. could get from the costume shop more than anything else. <laughs> it was ready, readily available props, and that's what you went with. Mm-hmm. The movie focuses a lot on the look. You hear it from their manager, who later dies in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. <laughs> You've got to be fucking kidding. <laughs> the focus isn't for the stains, for good or bad, isn't so much on what they're doing as what they are looking like. Well, it all adds to the, um, like, especially a young woman, yeah. you know, they're always like, you shouldn't leave the house dressed like that. Mm. You're going to get what's coming to you. You're going to have what you're asking for, it, blah, 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 blah. So I think the image of them yeah. was very important in that regard. Well, the first glimpse we get of her transformation from merely being Corinne into Corinne first degree burns. Third. Comes in the first gig we see in the movie. You. Hello? You don't fool me for a minute. I know all about you. You came here tonight thinking you'd see some cute and wonderful rock star. And you hope maybe he'd take one look at you from up on that stage and he'd fall in love with you just like that. Then your savior could take you out of this dump of a town you live in. You could be different from all the other girls. Suckers! 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 Be yourselves. These guys laugh at you. They've got such big plans for the world, but they don't include us. So what does that make you? Just another girl lining up to die. got the big reveal of the <laughs> black, white, and red look of the stains, what will be their look anyway, when she convinces the other two to get on board with it. At the very end, when she declares, we don't put out, she's declaring herself straight edge right there. And straight edge was huge in the post-punk movement. Something that started with minor threat. Oh, I didn't take it that way. That's not how I took it at all. How are you interpreting that? Um, I, I took it as in, because she even says later on, it's not even necessarily about like, because usually if you're not putting out, people are assuming you're not having sex. That's like typically. I just took it as in not taking any bullshit. Mm. Because, you know, any decisions you're making, they're your decisions alone. You're not therefore doing things that others are projecting onto you. That's how okay. I took it. But I do know that straight edge is very big in the pop punk scene and all that. I took it to mean they weren't like um, making their own records. <laughs> <laughs> not yet and yeah, yeah. they had to get somebody to do it for them so. ah i see interesting interpretation oh it has nothing to do with that in particular but um 
I just noticed a little trend we got going on with all these movies we're reviewing, and I'm thinking maybe 50% of them involve E.G. Daly in some capacity. She is in this movie, isn't she? Well, maybe not 50, but you know, yeah. I'd forgotten. Not for much. I mean, she's the hotel maid in this thing. No. She is there. But she becomes one of the skunks. She's like one of the front row fans at their shows, too. She shows up later in the movie. No, I didn't notice her later in the movie. I saw. I noticed her in the hotel room scene when... Yeah, that's like the first... Yeah. What other movies has she been in? She's in Fandango. And oh. she was in... Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. One Crazy Summer. No, 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 not One Crazy... Better Off mm-hmm. Dead. Better Off Dead. Demi Moore played her in One Crazy Summer. Never mind. Essentially. You'd recognize her if you saw her again, we promise. Probably. Well, she's been in... <laughs> but what I'm running into too. is... Where we're watching such older films, I recognize them in stuff now. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that person looks familiar to me, but I'm not sure why. And then I look them up and I'm like, oh, I saw a movie they were in last year. So yeah. Okay. And usually they don't have updated IMDb pictures they're, when they're <laughs> younger and it's, it's weird. You got to keep that I'm 24 IMDb picture going as long as you can. Oh. That actually reminds me. And I, because I saw, I watched this movie again. I think I told Jason whenever it was on the, uh, Pluto TV's Paramount channel, they had it on there. Remember, I, I think I sent that. I was like, oh, look what they're playing. Oh, yes. They played it, like, constantly. So I kind of would watch it, and then for the sake of this episode, I went back and watched my DVD. But it caught me this time, Christine Lottie in the beginning, as a blonde, she really reminds me, or I should say, she doesn't remind me of, but... Kelly Cuoco, that's what she looks like. Mm-hmm. Oh. No, she does. You're right. Because I, when I saw her in this, I was like, I know it's not her because yeah. the time, but, and then I looked her up and I've not seen her in anything else, but she looked so familiar to me. And I think you're right. Mm. She does have a similarity to her. Yeah. I've never like caught that before. And I, and it was like, what is she reminding me of here? And it, yeah, it turns out. Now that you mention it. Yeah, yeah. That sounds right. But if there was a parallel universe where Kelly Cuoco was, of age to make a movie back in 1980, she definitely could have played her mother. Not that she couldn't now, but I'm saying she looks so much mm. like her at that point. Anyway. This is true. We now return to our regularly scheduled Ray Winstone program. looks nothing like he did back then. <laughs> he does, though. Like, bit. his IMDb picture isn't, like, like, you can tell it's him. I'm not saying oh, yeah. they're identical, but mm. you can definitely, and then, of course, Laura Dern looks the exact yes. same. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. She does. Yeah, because yeah, I didn't know she was in it. So when she popped up, I was like, oh, Laura Dern. So yeah. that made me happy. There's uh yeah, it was after Winstone had done the Alan Clark movie Scum, which is brilliant if you've never seen that. You uh, mentioned that last time we recorded. Okay. I try to mention it every time. I'm just comes in and out of It's the new Jaws 3D. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> no, but it really is it is it's a brilliant movie and it's like probably akin to something like Short Eyes in terms of uh, like a good prison realistic film. Uh, and then he, either he had just done that or Quadrophenia. I can't remember which one because that, those were like the year before. Those came real close together. 78, yeah. 79. Yeah. And then he did another movie that summer called That Summer. But it was called That Summer. So I'm trying to think where this landed. If this was shot in 1980, all his stuff should have been shot in that year. Right, there's no reason. They only brought like yeah. the actual stains back for the reshoot. So you're saying people are going to walk up to him and asking, "Do you remember that summer?" And he's going to go, "What summer?" Right. No, no, no. That yeah. uh... he probably remembers quite a few summers. <laughs> yeah, 
that summer when I was lying in the pool as a sexy beast? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the yeah. full title? Yes. No, well, it's not. Yeah. Bizarrely, Sexy Beast is a sequel to that summer. Not really. Anyway, keep mm. going. I was like, no, I'm, I'm so. calling shenanigans. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> so we were discussing the the reveal of the new Fabulous Stains look, and that's really when they start catching the attention of their local Philadelphia radio station. Which brings us to our next clip, which is their first run-in with our two intrepid reporters. This is the latest chapter in the career of Corinne Burns, an extraordinary young female singer who continues to attract hordes of devoted followers. Why did you drive all the way up here to see this group? Because I saw her on TV. Obviously, then, all of you saw her on my show. I saw her live. Exploitation, that's all it is, it's exploitation. Where? At the penthouse, in person. What effect did she have on you? She said things that I've always wanted to say, and I haven't been able to. What kind of things? She gave her honest opinion of how she felt about people. That's why I'm like her now. And what are you? I'm a skunk. I just don't know. You begin to wonder about your profession, don't you? I mean, you give a little airtime to some nut on the big night news, and 24 hours later, you've got a bunch of other nuts who are just making her into a hero. I mean, they see something on the media, and they've got to do the same thing. Well, you're on the box every night for an hour, and I don't see anyone trying to be like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking about the power television has to create. Those girls created themselves. Well, uh, as far as I see it, what it really amounts to is uh, some girl dropouts who are using the media. I'm not reporting about a band as much as I am a very personal appeal for young women to resist. Resist what? <laughs> Life as we know it. I do love the uh, reaction he has when the lady goes to work in D.C. or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, and we're wishing her the best of luck. And I'm like, oh, you're very bitter <laughs> about it, you stupid idiot. Wow. I mean, I'm our luck. new national correspondent. We wish her the best of luck. <laughs> yeah, he he may be overplaying the smarminess there just a touch, but yeah. It's almost like he's trying to channel a bit of Hal Holbrook in that a little bit, where he's just nestled in the wording a little too much. Man looks into Not the, the abyss, Holbrook, bud. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're clearly developing a following, and and it's clearly clashing with the establishment. I mean, he uses well, the word because nuts. women aren't supposed to think for themselves. Sure. Yeah. He, do, he uses the word nuts. Given We give airtime to these nuts, and suddenly there's more nuts. More than two nuts at any given time. Who's to say? It's a whole jar Absolutely. of nuts. Chock full of nuts, if you will. There you go. Escape from New York. <laughs> there's so. a part of that clip I want to circle back to a little bit later involving the exploitation angle that Billy, Ray Winstone, brings up. Before we get to that, punk, and more specifically post-punk, had uh, two big run-ins with what what happened what happened sorry he said pound cake <laughs> i thought he said it why the hell would i say that He's, I, don't... <laughs> I don't know let's try to decipher oh, Go ahead. Christ, I'm <laughs> pound cake and action no i don't want to but anyway no <laughs> now I want pound cake. jason come back <laughs> so no. he's like nope 
Forget the it. Post-punk movement had two serious run-ins with mainstream media back in the early 80s, one of which was a now infamous episode of Quincy, where Quincy goes to investigate a death at a punk show that invol- ends up involving cannibals or some shit. I don't remember. The other one... not, But not fine young cannibals. No, they came later. They, had, they weren't <laughs> they around yet, no. The other one was a 1984 episode of Donahue. Ooh. I've taken this 45-minute long episode and cut it down to roughly two and a half minutes just to give you some flavor of how the mainstream media, which Donahue definitely was, handled this whole situation. It was a little bit messy, a little bit funny. Can we get a clip of Phil Hartman as Phil Donahue? Sadly, no. But part of what they're saying is that uh, they're themselves. They make their own decisions about how they look. And the society that surrounds them makes too much of unimportant issues like cosmetics, hair color, and all the rest. And this is their statement of themselves. Well, I'm myself too, but I don't let it affect, you know, I don't act outrageous and extreme around other people. I'm myself, but I don't let it affect other people. I'm myself. Meet uh, Ann Morrissey, who is here with her daughter, Dareth. Dareth is 17 years old. Mrs. Morrissey, I don't have to tell you that most parents would be extremely depressed if their daughter came home one day looking like this. I assume that was your, was your response shock, anger, depression? What was it? I was extremely angry. I really went bananas. Yeah, how old was she when this happened? Possibly 13, 14 years old. It almost broke up our family. But through counseling and Serena, uh, I can understand it better. We're learning to cope, and it's a very, very difficult thing. Al Jorgensen is 25. He's a musician and leader of the band called Ministry from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Al, you're in this for a living, I assume, huh? Yeah, for, for now, anyways. I'm sorry? For now. Uh-huh. I think uh, each one of those kids got started with a peer. And they uh, haven't been strong enough to break away. I just no, think it's, it's, it's the opposite. Group. I'm sorry, it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite. I'm just, I'm just curious why they, these people think that they're expressing some kind of uh, social steps forward. It, it looks like social decadence to me. You understand they love it when you do that. <laughs> when, you, when you bring a moral judgment against them for the way that they look, they feel that confirms the reason for their... Rebellion, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> I'm really kind of upset at everybody thinking that these kids are all just going to turn out wrong because of the way they're dressed. I'm a former flower child. I smoke pot. Here I am. I've got two kids. I'm conforming now. I hope everybody's happy. Um, are you happy? I still have the same philosophies. I'm still a flower child inside. I, they finally beat me down. Don't let them do you. Okay? We'll be back in just a moment. I just, I, um... Jane Badler with Hairspray. What's going on? Oh, that's Lucinda Dickey from Ninja 3 The Domination. I'm sorry. Right, you know you're not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're not sorry. In some respects. I have a question. Sorry. What's Donahue? Is it like... He's married to Marlo Thomas, Jerry that girl. Springer? Like that type yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Pre-Oprah. Like, Oprah gave him, Maury. like, real competition mm-hmm. when she hit the scene. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is shortly after The Color Purple, which right. was like 86, maybe. So he pretty much 
You had Mike Douglas, not Michael Douglas, Mike but Douglas. Mike Douglas is yeah. a daytime talk show host in the 70s. But that was like cordial talk, basically. And then Donahue came in, and he was like the exploitation in your face kind of mm-hmm. tank. Before Geraldo took that. Yeah, he seems him, yeah. very dickish about it. Donahue was a yeah. was a decent interviewer. His show was done live, by the way. They had callers who were watching the show live who could call in and discuss what they were seeing. If anybody wants to check out the full episode of that Donahue, that's it's all on YouTube. That was just a sampling of what you can expect. It just seems like his goal was to rustle feathers. Mm-hmm. Like it, it isn't. I'm not saying he's a dick. <laughs> he approaches things in a dick way. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I just, it made me think of when you had the news clip in the um, Maze Maybe, and yeah. Monsters episode. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of that to it, sure. Where it's like, yeah, where they just latch onto this one thing, even though it is not causing the negative rift that they think it is. But yeah. Well, that leads us to. I'm so a, glad uh, I was born when I was born. That leads us to a question Nathan asked during the clip was, who is Serena? The Serena they're talking about is a woman named Serena Dank, who is an actual person and not a G.I. Joe villain or... Great last name. She put herself out there as a professional counselor who led a group called um, Mothers of Punkers, I think it was called, who offered, and she offered professional counseling services to parents who were having a hard time coping with the fact that their son or daughter had blue in their hair now. But it was for the parents, right? It wasn't to keep the kids from it doing it. It comes off in the Donahue episode as if she's helping both sides come together mutually. I don't think it was like that. Everything else I've ever heard about her suggests that this is very much a not a meet us in the middle kind of situation. It was a you're going to make nice with your mom now situation kind of a thing. She's a very uh, so it polarizing was more against figure. the kids than for the kids. Very polarizing figure in the scene, but. She was. She would go on talk shows professionally and do this kind of stuff. I think that was more her. The goal was to get on television than to actually help anybody. I don't know for sure. I haven't really looked into it that deeply, but from everything I've read, you've pretty much can figure this one out on your own. It was nice in the mm. in the stains, however, when we see Christine Lottie when they see her getting interviewed on TV talk about how she feels like their mother would be proud of what they've done and not be against it that they were doing this thing on their own. It's a very nice moment in the movie, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I still took it as in she made it about herself and her sister. Mm. Like she, it was a genuine moment about her daughter, but then it also turned into this, oh, but see, now my, now my dead sister can be on TV. And the only reason I don't think it was 100% sincere was because when the woman was like, your daughter Peg, and she's like, her name is Jessica. And it's like, mm. you're still being poopy about this whole situation. Like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. it wasn't exactly dead naming, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's similar. no, but still like if you are there to support her, you know what her wishes are out of that. And you're still, yeah, fighting against it. One thing, uh, the thing I wanted to circle back with from the bit of the hotel scene in the previous clip was when Billy gestures wildly toward the television and says it's exploitation. It's hard to think about now because of the world we live in, but there was a time when selling merch was a sin. Selling t-shirts was considered selling out. You were supposed to be all about the music after all. Well, especially in the the pop punk stuff, because it wasn't about how much money you make. It was about just rallying and doing what you wanted to do in it. Sure. It wasn't about like the live shows or that's why a lot of it was underground and very 
you know, you had to know somebody who knew somebody because to go big was selling out. This is also the exact same moment that Blondie was doing designer jean ads. It was no longer considered part of the scene for that. And this is the downfall of the stains in the movie was they get pointed out mm-hmm. for making money off t-shirt sales. We don't think that's any big deal now. That's just kind of a thing. No, it's a given. This is the yeah. norm. But there was a time when, you know, having your song used in a commercial was considered, you know, enough to get you blacklisted. I think it was R.E.M. specifically said no song of theirs would ever be used in a commercial. And it was a couple of years later that uh, Moby said, my entire album is now available to be used in commercials if you so want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, shit, that started with the Beatles, though. I mean, yeah. that was like John and Paul were so against that. And of oh. course, when Michael Jackson bought the... Yeah, now they're in Target all commercials. That's when they hijacked Re- Revolution 9 for the Nike ad and got in all kinds of trouble for that. Because mm-hmm. people were... Yeah. How could you do this to the Beatles? They knew the Beatles weren't responsible. Is that why right. Metallica is so weird about their music? Or are they just weird? Uh, both. I think it's both. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know what the deal is with yeah. Metallica. But... Because I get the impression, like, none of their stuff is available on streaming. Right. Like, if you get oh, their stuff, Oh, that all goes back to the Napster to... thing. With the, okay. yeah, that, There yes. was a huge... The movement with Lars Ulrich, and yeah. That was some crazy shit. He was against streaming completely, but that's the now that's the only way you can get stuff out there, really. But if you're if you're metallic, everybody knows who you are, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean they don't they don't need it. I mean your fans. That's why I was like, are they just being weird about it at this point? It it, it does kind of have that feel because it's not like the money aspect of it is being a famous band that tours the world and everybody knows who we are. We don't need to be known from streaming, so we're not going to let anybody else do it either. Kind of a thing. Maybe that's maybe being a little cynical and maybe misinterpreting their well, intentions. I, mean, I get the impression he is pretty cynical. <laughs> so I know they're notorious for uh, having stuff removed off YouTube if any of their music mm. is like seeking well, it out to demonetize oh, it and sure. remove it and things sure. like that. And that's I'm not saying it shouldn't about, be, but you know. Well, like if you look at uh, now with his estate, Prince was probably the king of that shit. Like he didn't. He would individually on his own seek people out on YouTube mm-hmm. or Instagram videos. There was some actress that was like <gasps> dancing to one of his songs. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a child too? Like there was like a funny yeah, cute baby video where a baby but was dancing to a prince song. It was a, a cease and song. desist actions mm-hmm. would always go into effect. And now that, you know, since he's passed, it's kind of crazy that all his stuff's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, it's mm-hmm. streaming anywhere. Yeah. I mean, you talk about somebody who totally... and. It, and rightfully so. I mean, it was his control. It was his product. Isn't that also why there was such uh, a kerfuffle over using his likeness in, wasn't it the Super Bowl or something? They did, the, uh, no, it wasn't Super Bowl. It was something, but they used like a projected image of him. And they're probably. like, he would totally have not been oh, down yeah, for that. Yeah, like, no, he wouldn't have been. Hmm. In fact, a lot of what you see that's being released now are like demos. He would mm-hmm. never go for that shit. No. Right. If he didn't, if he didn't no. release him on his own, he certainly didn't want anybody else doing it either. Right. But I mean, it's great as a fan, but on the same level, I'm sitting there mm. going, he probably wouldn't want me to hear this shit. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Even definitely a double-edged sword. Like... Yeah. It's like listen to a studio session from your favorite band. It's not the complete version, but you love them and you want to hear it. And you know. Didn't they just release a bunch of Bowie stuff too? Oh, that, that's... Last year? About in the same boat, but mm. he yeah. was never too weird about yeah. commercialization, obviously. Well, or, don't know. forget Bowie Bonds. He was definitely not against commercialization. 
Well, what was that? Uh, he he had his own internet. Remember yep. that? In the late nineties, he launched I'm his own Bowie internet. Yeah, it was like comparable to whatever at the time. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. <laughs> it was like back in like ninety four, ninety five. So for the stains to get called out. I don't think the t-shirts were their idea. I mean, this is just another example of the music industry sort of killing everything it touches. Once they got a manager, it well, was pretty much making, over for them. The money's the important part. So Sold a bunch yeah. of shirts, did a couple of shows, then management dumps them for the next big thing, and they're kicked to the curb. And that was supposed That's to be the end of the movie. a great parable about the music industry, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Or just Holly, like, not Holly, but, like, also Hollywood in general. Mm. Yeah. When you are hot shit, they want you, but then the second you're not anymore or something yeah. else comes along, then... Flavor of the month. Yep, yeah, pretty much. And I believe that's the way the movie was intended to be, but then you get, like we said before, the ending. The stains come roaring back again. But it's also an interesting view in... I took it as in, like, their success story. They did it regardless of what mm. people thought of them. Yeah. Which is kind of an awesome ending, especially if you're a younger woman or younger girl watching this movie, mm -hmm. because it shows that no matter what you go through, you can still succeed on the other end, regardless of how the writer director wanted it to be done. You know what I mean? That reminds me, we have, we've gone this yeah. in almost the entire hour and haven't talked about Lou Adler, the director of this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's the driving force behind all of this. Executive producer yeah. of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, directed Up in Smoke. Mm -hmm. Has not really got yeah. much else to his name as far as directing credits goes. Well, he's, you know, music. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, he you look at all the acts in this film, yeah. it's all because of him. You've got the tubes, you've got mm -hmm. two of the Sex Pistols, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Metro Squad. Yeah, all these elements in here are because of him. He's the draw. I almost forgot about Metro Squad. They're a strange group of guys. <laughs> but that wasn't their singer, was it? In the movie. I, I don't, don't think know. it was. Were they the band that they were going to hire? That sh they he that they were like, get out of here? He almost looks like David Dukes, that guy. Yeah. You're, you're, oh, we're God, thinking David of the Duke. giant band that... Not David Duke, David the actor. Ray Winstone walks oh, in never on mind. and talk, says, <laughs> we're not, I need rockers. I don't want these people. That, yeah, that's that group. the group. Yeah. yeah. They, they slept in an arcade. Yes. <laughs> That's them. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, Lou Adler, Ode Records was his as well. Okay. I mean, when I think of Ode Records, I think of all the iterations of the Rocky Horror soundtrack, you know. Mm -hmm. And there are tons. That. Yeah. And was this soundtrack album actually pressed, as it's, it says in the credits at the time? I, I don't know. I was looking for I it, really and I really doubt it. It says it's available on old records. I don't think so. And um, I can't imagine there being a demand for it, since there was no real distribution of it back in 82, aside from a few theaters, yeah. like three or four theaters, I think. I want it now. I have not, not seen, heard of, or spoken to anyone who has ever seen a copy of the soundtrack album anywhere. So I, I have serious doubts. And there's about a lot of done. movies that advertise either a movie tie-in or mm -hmm. a soundtrack album on their poster art or the end credits, and it actually never materialized. Yeah. Evidently, there was a pressing in 2008. Oh well. Well, that would be <laughs> yeah. That was when the DVD came out. That was the mm -hmm. first time the DVD the movie was ever officially available on home video, and that was. Doesn't Lou Adler have a hand in Rhino as well? 
Oh, Rhino probably, owns yeah. Ode, I believe. And Rhino is the label that it was under. Right. Incidentally, even though it's a Paramount film, he has control over it, I guess. If you only see this movie on streaming, I strongly recommend, if you can, pick up a copy of the DVD, because I believe Lane and Dern both do commentary on that. And it is, as I remember, yeah, it absolutely it's fascinating. It's great. A lot of insight it's into fun. how the movie It's like watching it with a couple of old friends sure. or whatever. They're just having a great time watching <laughs> it. But the other reason why is I was trying to figure out the ages. I was like, there's no way Dern was 13. There's no way. But she confirms it in the mm-hmm. commentary that she actually is. And she had just done Foxes also, which is crazy mm-hmm. to think. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah, this right here says that the soundtrack was never released in 1982. So when the DVD was released in 2008, that's when they did... Um, MP3 CDs and LPs of it. Yeah. So they went oh, no, streaming with it. This Lars. is when you should finish reading. Um, the vinyl reached the test press stage, but the commercial release wound up being scrapped due to rights issues. Okay. So it never well, came out. I suspected out. it was also yeah. maybe scrapped because nobody saw the movie either and wouldn't know what the hell the soundtrack was. Yeah, even there's for. no interest in it. I would love it. It was literally in theaters for <laughs> yeah. maybe one screening and then it was gone. And it went on basic cable pretty much mm-hmm. in the 80s, and that's kind of where it got its cult audience. And I, I think that's where you're saying like bands like Sleater Kinney were influenced because they would have been right about that age, you yeah. know, of impressionable age to see that. Whereas at the time, you had the Go Go's, you had Madonna, but I don't think they were influenced at all. Obviously, the, the Go Go's go back to the 70s, back but forever, that's yeah, what but nobody knew about that. Really? No, but what I, I think about this movie and I think about that ending is I think of the Go-Go's mm. because the Go-Go's yeah. were a punk band initially. Mm-hmm. It's a similar video to the kind and of stuff. I can see the similarities there. Yeah, but it just seems to parallel on its own. I did read in the IMDb stuff that the creators behind the show Russian Doll that came out in 2019 mm-hmm. cited that movie as one of their influences. I don't doubt I don't it. really, like, having seen both, I don't necessarily see a super big like correlation but i'll take their word for it i liked the show it was good well uh, just inspiration enough evidently Mm -hmm. the fabulous danes has had a far and wide and far-reaching influence well beyond when it was released when or wasn't wasn't released i should say we saw clips of it on night flight probably i think that's the first place i ever heard of it what's night flight it had a life on there that was pre-usa up all night Mm -hmm. basically okay um throughout the 80s it's kind of made a comeback as of it's, late with streaming. It it think, is. It's been it's just re-edited usually, and it's not really the same. I mean, yeah, not, they're like digest versions yeah. of the episodes from old days. The thing about yeah. Night Flight was it was a four-hour-long show, aired every week on USA, starting at ten o'clock at night, and you never knew what you were going to get. You were going to get <laughs> music videos, movies. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty interesting. They devoted an entire hour to IRS records announcing which bands they signed recently or you could get an hour of the fire yeah. sign theater doing skits or yeah web wilder i think it's the first place i ever heard of web wilder was on night flight of all people you just you didn't know What's what web wilder? web wilder was like an alternate country if there was such a thing as alt country back in the 1980s he was one of those guys i know it's a very very small genre <laughs> very small it's like five people it's him and katie lang no oh fair enough i'm kidding yeah, but I, I at least know that. Guys like legendary Stardust Cowboy and people like that. But that was Night Flight. It was just, you would turn it on and be like, okay, what the hell are they going to do now? I like the uh, the randomness to it. Mm-hmm. 
Like that you yeah. don't know what you're going to, I kind of like and that. And if it sucked, you could f- just late night yeah, television. If, it, if what they were showing sucked, you could flip over to TBS and watch night tracks instead and maybe watch a, a wham video for two hours straight. Who knows? Anybody got any final thoughts yeah. on the fabulous stains? I know we, I love this I movie. I could definitely see me watching it again. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. And it was interesting because I watched a movie yesterday um, called Dinner in America. It's a 2021 release, but it is very similar to this in the regard is it's about a guy who is part of a pop punk band trying to do different things to make money so they can put their album out. Mm. And it was very similar in that like um, coming of age story, finding yourself type thing, but surrounded by music. Creating your own thing. That's the whole thing. That's what it's about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I definitely don't think this movie is a waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) And with that, we'll draw the episode to a close. Thank you all for listening. Oh, wait. And one more thing. I just want to try this. Oh, God. Blood Fist 4, Die Trying. That's it? Katie Cena? No way. No. I have no idea what you're talking about. I thought you were like trying to summon something or something like Blood Fist or, Four Die Trying. That's one of the nu- that's another one of those. I was waiting for you to go. I haven't seen it, but you well, didn't. I, I didn't you even like, know it was a movie it. title. It sounds like a video game. That's <laughs> like, another. Let's be real. Nathan, that's another one of those you take up to the booth at Frightmare, and they're like, "No, nah, I would never saw that." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest, Dan Haggerty was not in that, oh. so it kind of makes sense. It's fitting. Missed opportunity. What if he had seen that though and was like, "Why are you making me sign this? He's like, I'm not even shit. in it." Yeah, <laughs> it's weird that you brought this up to my table because I'm a fan of Cat Sassoon. No, this is my favorite movie. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Anyway. No, no, no need to apologize. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs> Nobody can tell you. There's only one song. That's it. The show is over for now. The Smooth Thrills Radio Hour is a production of Ghostcraft and is recorded live in Dallas, Texas. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please email them to autopilot at smooththrillsradiohour.com. Enjoy the rest of your day. This has been a Ghostcraft presentation.